Welcome, bonjour. You are listening to episode one of L'Après Cool, a weekly AUP student-run international affairs podcast. We are here to break down complex international affairs issues in an easily digestible manner. The fact that you're tuned in means we haven't scared you off yet, and that's a good thing. Boo! <laughs> we are going to tackle some complex <laughs> issues. We are here bringing experts in to un- help us understand these complex topics. We're in this together, my friends. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is episode one. How are you guys feeling? Feeling good. That was Stuart, by the way, that just attempted to scare all of our listeners. I tried to a- scare you. Hey, it's October, and you know what that means. Halloween. It's Halloween. Scary month. It's spooky season, so that was very Ooh. fitting. <laughs> do, you, do you have a Halloween costume planned? I do not, no. It doesn't wow. seem like it's a big deal here in, in Paris. Yeah, I, I think I should I should start planning ahead, right? I, I think it's I, start, to get, start to get the ideal mill huh. going here. All right, well, let's... All right, all maybe, right. I'll, maybe I'll dress up as Professor Gollop. Ooh. That's a great segue. <laughs> so this is I play cool. This is episode one, and I just want to go through a few things really quickly. Just a little few notes. Most importantly, in my opinion, we are on Instagram, Woo. so you can follow us. You, I know all of you all have Instagram. Yes. It's called Ads. Instagram official. Don't act, don't act like you don't have Instagram. <laughs> we got the blue check. I'm, I'm joking. We do not. <laughs> we're not. We're not that official yet. We're not that official yet. But you can follow us at at like at sign. A P R E S C O U R S. Hit the follow button. Send us a cool. message if you want to. Hey, slide in the DM. Just let us know how you're doing. Send us a message. Say, hey, Belay, how you doing today? Yeah. I'll probably say something back. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> a couple other things that I wanted to just bring up just before we go any further. All right. I want to send a quick thank you to World Radio Paris and the American University of Paris for delivering our content through the airwaves in this wonderful city. Oh, my. Am I the only one who's excited about that? No, when technology I, is When amazing. I heard my voice on episode zero, I actually hated it. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> no, I, I hated the sound of my own voice, oh. but it was, actually, it was really exciting, and, um, and I, I'm, re- I'm really excited that we're doing this together. So. I know. Now, another um, thing I want to say really quickly is, fear not if you have not figured out where to find episode zero. Because very soon, we will be streaming on all streaming platforms. I'm talking about iTunes. I'm talking about Spotify. You name it, we will be there. Mm. All right? We will be there for you, bringing content. This is episode one. So, we figured we could name low for episode one. We got to shoot for the stars. We need to dive right into a topic that is fresh on our minds. We sat down with the highly esteemed Dr. Philip Golub. To, inter- to discuss international trade relations between the U.S. and China. I have to say it was a pretty interesting conversation. What did you guys think? Yeah, it got uh, very deep, but also engaging and interesting. And we also discussed a lot of uh, fun personal tidbits about Dr. Philip Golub. And which... his, his obsession with uh, gastro. Yes, gastro. Uh, just the, the how, world. What is the name? Gastronomy. <laughs> gastronomy. Okay. All right. The world of gastronomy. Yes. Okay. Yes, in general. And no. Diana is our gastronomy expert. I'm Ooh. I'm the house gastronomy expert yes. here. So whether um, you're into yes. international affairs or if you're just into a great meal, listen to this episode. Amazing. You will be amazed. And wait till the end of the episode too, because you may or may not hear a. Must need recipe. Mouthwatering Ooh. recipe. Mouth, my my mouthwatering. I I ran right to the nearest boulangerie <laughs> right after that. Yeah. I mean, I'm telling you, I was hungry after that interview. Yes. Hungry for food and hungry for more knowledge. Hungry for more information on. Hungry for the truth. The China U.S. trade wars. Yeah. All right. 
So without further ado, let's jump into the discussion with Dr. Philip Golub. Thank you so much for coming by, um, uh, Dr. Philip Golub. Or is it um, Professor Golub? You can use either as you like. <laughs> we, okay. Stuart was was conflicted about yeah. this in particular as to what we should this, this address you. Internal debate. Yes, but we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, we'll do both. Um, so Dr. Philip Golub is a professor of political science, uh, political philosophy, and international relations at the American University of Paris. Um, you also teach at other universities or institutions, is that correct? Yes, I have taught at uh, the Université Paris 8 and at Sciences Po in Paris, and I, I do lecturing in all kinds of different places. Very cool, and we're very, very honored to have you as our professor. Um, so uh, you obtained your uh, master's in philosophy and international relations and contemporary history at the University of Paris, and your doctorate in international relations at the University of Sussex. Yes, indeed. So, um, how many years of total schooling is that? Oh, that's too much. <laughs> <laughs> too, much to, too much to admit to. Um, and prior many books. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and prior to AUP, you've taught at the Institute of European Studies, uh, the University of Paris, and the graduate program, as you mentioned, at Sciences Po. Um, you know, aside from all of those esteemed, established uh, titles and activities that you've been involved in, um, we also know that you're a food aficionado and a foodie, and you cook occasionally. Yes, I do. And we have heard on occasion that you make the stingray cheek, and we're very curious about that, and hopefully we'll get into it at some point. I'm happy to do that. <laughs> that is so exciting. We're looking forward to it. Um so currently, you, or just very recently, you released um, a, a document or an article, sorry, uh, about curbing China's rise in La Monde Diplomatique. And if you're an AUP student, you have full access to La Monde Diplomatique, just plugging that in case you want to read the article. It's also available on newsstands all around Paris. Yes. Yes, you can read it in French or English or German or Brazilian or many languages. Yes. So... We want to get into the, um, you know, the recent events in U.S.-China trade wars, and um, we want to see if we can tackle Trump's theoretical approach to um, trade deals and tariffs, and maybe even considering your background, see if we can uh, apply international relations theory to the context of this specific conflict. But... um, we don't, we don't. We don't want to be graded on that. By yeah. way. <laughs> I, I don't want to be graded either. <laughs> okay. Uh, no pressure. Uh, but before we get into that, um, you know, the guys and I were reading this article, and there was just such a wealth of information in it, and it was very extensive and well detailed. So we wanted to ask that first. How did you go about the research for the article? I mean, it was so well detailed, and um, you know, we want to know how long it took to put all of that together and how your research method was. Well, I've been looking at this, the, the issues around this for a very long time. I published a book in, in 2016 called East, entitled East Asia's Reemergence at Politics Press, Cambridge. And that book took years of preparation, of course, and years of reading. And I spent a significant amount of time going back and forth between, between Europe and Asia, uh, doing work in Asia. So, so the, the, the question of the, the, the changing configuration of the, of, of the world and of the world balance of power uh, because of China's reemergence has been a question that has been preoccupying me that I've been working on for quite some time. So 
So I, I, what I did was I, I, I put Trump's uh, uh, conflict with China, his both trade as well as other financial conflicts with China, uh, into a broader historical context, as I tried to do in the article. So I, I went back in time, uh, about 30 years or so, to the end of the Cold War. Uh, the process of gathering the information involves both the mobilization of the material that I had worked on traditionally and fitting new material into these frameworks, you see, and seeing if it fits or doesn't fit. In other words, you know, seeing whether, whether my appreciations of the present actually can make, in, make a coherent picture once you place it in this historic perspective. So it involves a lot of, a lot of background knowledge and involves digging into the present by looking at the, looking very carefully at what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis. It's a kind of balancing act between the very, very, very intense day-to-day -day work today and all this historical background. And I mean, it's, it's interesting because when I think of the way globalization and our global markets are structured today, I think of it in the context of the post-Cold War era where there's an idea where we want to defend the free market and we want to strengthen U.S. hegemony in general. This has been pushed since the fall of, you know, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I mean, when we see some of these things like the tariffs and the, and the dismantling of international trade organizations like the TPP and denouncing NAFTA, I'm seeing a, a, a step back from our previously held idea that we have to keep this global market just moving, this, this sort of, you know, free market. Yes, indeed. indeed. And so, I mean... When I think about that, and I think about the way that this administration was able to just dismantle that and take a step back, I wonder, I mean, what is it exactly about the president's actions and the nature of the administration that makes it, it, makes it possible to push such an agenda? Yeah, that, that's an interesting remark because we aren't, it's, I don't know if it's a step back or if it's a step forward uh, because that, that implies some kind of value judgment. What, we're seeing a change in the nature of the uh, of globalization itself due to the U.S.'s shifting approach to global markets and global interdependence. Uh, you're right, the United States, after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, initiated and supported policies of global liberalization, market liberalization, as well as uh, privatization, all of this under the heading of the Washington Consensus, that actually you know, created the conditions for the emergence of a new global capitalist economy for the first time since the end of the 19th century, in fact. There'd been a long hiatus, a long interruption in the globalization process due to wars, depression, war again, and then the Cold War. All right? So, so, so the, the, the globalization process at the end of the Cold War meant the spread of capitalism to the entire world. And there's almost no region of the world today, there are hardly any regions of the world today that aren't touched, touched by it. The U.S. administration's approach today re represents, as you pointed out, a major shift in U.S. thinking about these problems. Huh? In technical terms, it's it's, you, know, you can characterize their approach as a mercantilist approach rather than a liberal internationalist economic approach. There, there's an effort, very clear effort, and I think quite deliberate effort, to tear apart the webs of interdependence that have linked the United States to China and China to world markets over the past 30, 35, 40 years. Uh, China was integrated into the capitalist world economy uh, uh, since the 1980s, uh, since the reforms in China at the end of the 1970s and 1980s, willingly by the United States. The United States thought that they could shape China's political and economic pathways through this integration process by putting China under the disciplines of the Western world economy. It turns out that China has 
has profited immensely from that integration process due to state-led policies. And this has now led to a consensus in Washington. It's not only Trump, huh? It's also the Democratic Party leadership. It's also the National Security Institution. Chuck Schumer, Chuck Schumer is actually actually harsher in certain respects than, than Trump in his language on China uh, because there's a concern in the United States, in the elites of the United States, that China is catching up too quickly, too rapidly, and that this represents somehow a major competitive threat to the United States in future. So it's a major shift, you're right. A step back, surely, in the sense of step back as compared to the globalization process, but it's a major shift in the approach on the U.S. side towards the globalization process. So go, going off what you said about not sure whether this is a positive step or kind of what step in what direction this is, and take, keep it, taking into mind, you know, Adam Smith and this idea of the invisible hand, you know, um, free markets, um, my question is, you know, play, playing devil's advocate a little bit here, you know, could, could a shift away from manufacturing in China actually represent a natural change in the market? You know, if, if other countries like Taiwan and Vietnam and these other Southeast Asian countries are willing to provide cheap labor, isn't that just a market correction or, you know, that's kind of a, a natural progression of transnational companies looking for the cheapest place to produce their goods? Yeah, it would be, except for the fact that it's being impulsed by a series of political decisions taken in Washington. In other words, it's the, the trade wars are actually putting pressure. They're creating uncertainty for transnational firms, okay? A significant amount of uncertainty over what might come next. And actually, day by day, if you look at the Financial Times, for instance, yesterday, uh, today's Financial Times, the day before yesterday, there's constantly something new on this front that's coming from Washington. Huh? So, so transnational firms are looking for predictability. They're looking for, for markets in which they, they can be sure that their investments will last for you know, quite some time. These are you know, long-term long-term relationships that they want to build up with their subcontractors internationally or transnationally. Trump has created uncertainty deliberately. There's a deliberate effort there. So it's a politically driven move that is pushing these firms, many firms, not all, out of China into, into new places, into Vietnam, into India. Uh, Foxconn, for example, the, the firm that assembles all your electronic equipment from Apple to Dell to everybody else's, which is a Taiwanese company, is moving part of its systems, uh, assembly systems, out of continental China into India, uh, Vietnam, and other countries that happen to be allies of the United States, or at least friendly to the United States, if they're not actually specifically allies. So this is politically driven. It's, politically, it's, not, it's not the invisible hand that's at work here. It's the visible hand that's at work creating new circumstances for the world economy. Right? Um, whether this is good or bad is another issue, uh, globally speaking. For those people who think in Washington and in Europe that China represents a significant security threat and potential economic threat in the future, it's a good thing. For people who believe that tearing apart interdependence is actually going to create the conditions for other forms of conflict, it's bad. I don't think we can come to a definitive judgment on this at this point. Uh, what it is doing is it's creating a new situation one which is more fraught with dangers. There's no question about that because the China-U.S. relationship right now is one of exacerbated competition and rivalry. So speaking of Adam Smith um, and the invisible hand, I also wanted to mention the imbalance of um, the comparative advantage that these two nations have. So obviously the U.S. is a little bit more privileged in being able to apply certain tariffs and um break certain ties with um, markets and things of that nature. So 
Um, how do you think uh, this progression that, um, you know, Donald Trump is taking us down toward uh, and moving into the 2020 um, election period, um, how do you think that is going to affect um, 2020 in particular? The election? Yes, yes, exactly. Well, it's not, it's not clear that it's going to... I mean, what's happening in Washington right now makes everything very uncertain. The impeachment process, everything around it, everything else is basically being drowned out. But I, I think I think that that Trump's the rhetoric of the Trump administration on China actually also has. I mean, that's not the main purpose, but it also has a. It's also designed to mobilize certain parts of the U.S. population, those parts of the population that feel that they've been hurt by global free trade, and there are large parts of the white middle class and lower middle class populations of the United States who actually feel working class populations that feel that somehow globalization has been disadvantageous to them. Uh, firms have relocated abroad under free trade and free investment regimes. Uh, you, you've had all kinds of pressure on wages because of this. So there, there's been, you know, globalization, globalization looks good if you're sitting in a skyscraper in New York. It doesn't look so good, or in Seattle, <laughs> it doesn't look so good if you're sitting in some small, smaller community, you know, down in the Midwest, which where manufacturing jobs are being lost because of relocations to China, to Vietnam, or to anywhere else for that matter. So it also appeals to a certain part of his political base, you see. It's not, so it won't appeal to the internationalized parts of the U.S. business community or cultural communities in the major metropolitan areas of the country, but it will appeal to other parts of the population. So whether this plays out significantly in the elections or not, uh, I don't think it will because there's a, all kinds of other noise right now coming out of U.S. politics which will, which will drown it out. But it's not something that's going to turn off uh, the political base that's, that is traditionally Trump's political base. It's I, mean, I think it's very interesting that we've, we've had two comments about Adam Smith so far. Um, re remembering that he is, I mean, I, I believe he was a, a nationalist. I believe that his idea was to was not thinking globally in terms of the whole world. He was thinking about his country first. If I'm, if I'm, well, I wouldn't characterize him as a nationalist. I would, you know, Adam. The importance of Adam Smith in international relations theory and and in economic theory is that the idea of the invisible hand. That somehow the, the, the this this very powerful idea in a certain way that that individual the sum total of individual egoism. Uh, somehow providentially or naturally end up generating a common harmony, a, a harmony of interests and, and a common interest for all, so welfare in, in, in classic neoclassical economics, uh, has been applied at international level by interdependence theorists, right? So the idea here being that what is true at the national level in terms of the division of labor also applies at international level in terms of the international division of labor in which, in which you would have, if you have purely free markets, this is the idea, pure free markets uh, in which states do not intervene, you would actually have a configuration in, in, of harmony between various actors and leading ultimately to a greater chance for peace in international relations. So, so it's not, he's not a nationalist. He, he actually, he, he, he was against empire. And, and most of the nationalists were in favor, the mercantilists were in favor of empire. Ad, Adam Smith is a theorist of the, essentially of the harmony of interest due to economic interdependence. Insofar as other countries are not taxing you. I believe he, he yeah, said that. Yeah, of course, of course. Right. In, of course. This, uh, depend, the, yes, on the assumption that you're, you're in a symmetrical relationship in which governments do not, and states mm -hmm. do not intervene terribly much in the markets. Right. So, I mean, that shifts a little bit, right, when there's the, there's an imbalance of gains, like we were, we were yeah. actually discussing uh, yesterday. So 
there's there's definitely that to acknowledge here too, right? Yeah, they're asymmetric. In fact, of course, the world does not look like like an ideal Adam Smithian world in which in which in which free trade actually flows without political disturbances and barriers and things of this type. Power is always part of this, and 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 given that power is always part of it, there's both national power and other forms of power. Given that power is always part of it, you never have a pure free trading system. You actually have a asymmetric relationships. There are some winners and some losers. Losers. It's not always win-win. It's not. It's all in mean, for the for the countries of the global south. It's rarely win-win, actually. So so at least historically, and and so and therefore for these reasons, because of these asymmetries, which are politically also based, politically, political and economic asymmetries. Uh, you actually don't come out. You don't end up with a a situation in the world in which in which a, the invisible hand actually works neatly across the entire world. It doesn't work, and so and so and China's proof of this in a certain kind of way that what has worked very well for China has worked because of state intervention in China. It's the way the state has intervened systematically in the buildup of uh, buildup of its technological capabilities by imposing certain things on transnational firms. For instance, imposing technology transfer on firms that are investing in China. So it's the state intervention in China that has actually shaped Chinese developmentalism and has led to a significant capability of China today to become a great power. I, I have a question now that maybe I should write my term paper about this. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not going to. <laughs> but um, my question is, you're talking about power versus profit here in the article and and you've been you've been talking about this but is is this does this shift almost represent a little bit of a, a, a failing of the liberalist view is this almost kind of a return to the realist view and power being more important than international trade is this it's this is is this zero sum politics is that how president trump understands this well trump yes trump understands the world as win lose okay zero as a zero sum game I win, you lose, you win, I lose. That's how he views world politics, and many of the people around him view it that way. No, but you can look, I think the question is an important question that you're asking, Stuart, which is, which is that, you know, you, you have, why, why power and profit? The logic of capital, or of economics if you prefer, and the, the logics of the political sphere don't always coincide. Sometimes they do coincide, Sometimes they don't coincide. It fluctuates historically, right? Obviously, under conditions under conditions of peace, stability, and international economic expansion, such as the end of the 1990s, right, or some parts of the end of the 19th century, the profit tends to predominate over power, over power politics. Yes, but then power politics sometimes reasserts itself. In in the case of the in the case of the 19th century, the World War One World War One showed that the political realm, the political and strategic realms, actually had their own relative autonomy. They're not completely autonomous. Neither, neither realm is completely autonomous. They interact. The economic and political realms interact. Hence the specialization, the discipline called international or global political economy, right? Uh, I, the reason why I said that, that power is, is, is now gaining over profit, I'm actually alluding to a statement made by Karl Polanyi in The Great Transformation, which is a very important book to understand the, the present. Karl Polanyi's Great Transformation, I don't mention it in the article, in which he, 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 he actually shows how the transnationalization of capital at the end of the 19th century was the dominant logic of the world until 
the you know the the moments that prior to World War One, and he describes World War One as the moment where power prevailed over profits. You see, so I'm actually alluding to him, and I'm assuming that some of the readers will be reading the re reading the text will will realize that maybe not. Maybe I should have actually mentioned him. The book is a very important book. I I would suggest all of all of uh, uh, our listeners to, to actually take a look at it because it's terribly relevant to our times. Would you would you say it's digestible? It, well, part <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't think that everybody should read the whole book. I think you can read the introduction and the first chapter, and then the last chapters. There's a, there's a whole intermediate part about the, the 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 reasons why the the markets markets failed in in in, in the course of the in the course of the 19th century, the poor laws and other state interventions that were wrongly, wrongly, wrongly implemented that I think are not necessarily uh, immediate to our discussion here, but uh, relevant to our discussion. But certainly the introduction, the first chapter and the last chapters are terribly relevant, including his, his, all, of his, all of the chapters on the rise of fascism, on the causes of the rise of fascism. Today it's not fascism, it's ethno-nationalism and things of this type, you know. So yes, parts of it are digestible. Well, that's that's the content we're trying to deliver yeah. to our audience, digestible, because we realize these are very complex issues, and uh, breaking them down is very hard for us. It's, it's <laughs> so, a tricky task. Well, I yeah. hope I'm being clear. You're you being, are. You're being so clear, um, but we, we want you to know that it's it's not all serious on this pod. So the pod, yes, it's not okay. all serious on this pod. So and and so we want to we want to get back to the stingray recipe. Okay. To wrap things up, to wrap things up. Um, and, you know, I know our class, we got the full description. So, But we didn't get the recipe. We didn't get the recipe. Yes. We didn't get the recipe. Well, eating well is really important, okay? Yes. I mean, it's, you know, eat, as, as I've stressed in many of my political philosophy classes, we, we don't just, we just we don't go hunting, hunting in forests and, 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 and jump on prey and just gobble up the prey. What we do is we actually... It's culturally, our eating is culturally, you know, shaped, and mm -hmm. and we have all kinds of rituals. We've been socialized. We socialized. Yeah, <laughs> eating is a social process. It's a it's a cultural it's a cultural and social process that has a biological function, but the biological function is less important actually for us in our minds than the cultural, cultural and and pleasure pleasure side of it. Yes. So so cooking is really important. I think. Oh. Uh, learning learning to do some cuisine. I'm not a great great cook, but I do do a couple of things, including the stingray recipe. Which is, these are cheeks. You have to you have to go to a, a, a fishmonger, who will sell you the cheeks of a stingray, and and these are these are you know sizable little pieces of. Are they of, like scallops? Yeah, they look they look like scallops. Okay. Yeah, I mean uh, they're not scallops, but they look like scallops. And there's I a little imagined. bone. There's a little bone. You just have to clean it very slightly. Mm -hmm. You rinse it, you clean it, you dry it. Uh, so, so what you do is you take, I don't know, it depends how many, you take three or four per, 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 you know, per person, and then uh, you, you brown them You brown them in olive oil, obviously. You're going to be using olive oil, maybe a little bit of sesame oil with it. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to do this on both sides, and then you're going to cook it for about, depending on the side, between six and eight minutes. So three minutes one side, three minutes the other mm -hmm. side, or four and four, right? And you are the, you are going to be you're going to put a, you just put a couple of spices on you can put a little bit of oregano or things things like that depending on how much spicing you want and you're going to add lemon juice at the end so you're gonna you're gonna turn down the fire you're gonna turn down the heat you're gonna be at you know at seven or eight you're gonna bring it down to two 
and, and then you're going to add lemon juice because you don't want the lemon juice to burn, right? right? Not too much lemon juice, though. Just enough to give it a, t- you know, tang. Yes. You hear and that? Tang. Not too much. Tang. Yeah, not tang. too much lemon. Not too much, but enough. But enough. It has to be enough. It has to, it has to be, I'll tell you why, because then you're going to be adding cream, okay? Oh. So, so you need lemon. Whoa. The lemon and the cream have got to fit together appropriately. Wow. So you put the lemon, but prior to preparing all of this, you have to have some saffron. Okay, oh, so you have saffron, which is, you know, I mean, it, it's it's a brilliant kind of thing for the rice. A rare and, commodity. Yes, it's 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 a well, it's not rare in some places. I actually get mine from I actually get mine from Greece, and it's not Ooh. terribly expensive. I have I have secret connections to Greece. Oh my! So, <laughs> so, we must learn about this <laughs> so, next next episode. Yes, next episode. So so what you do is you you've prepared your saffron. You take the saffron stems and you put them put them in water and wow. filtered water, obviously. And then so you you have the saffron there. So you you have your juice, uh, the lemon, and the juice from the cooking of the fish, right? Which is not terribly much. And then you put the saffron in that juice, and then you cream. And you mix all of that, you put pepper on it, and you take it off the fire, and you serve it with uh, uh, semi-full-grain Thai or Basmati white rice, and you have an absolutely brilliant recipe. Oh, my goodness. Is anyone else hungry? I I know. Is it lunchtime? (laughs) Damn. It's only one. So, I mean, this is incredible. I think I have a new shopping list. (laughs) Yeah. I'm feeling pretty hungry. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Wow. I know. Amazing. You heard it here, listeners. This is episode one. (laughs) <laughs> episode one. Also, I, I can also tell you at some other point, maybe in some other episode, how you do a real, real Bolognese sauce. You know, it's yeah, not yeah. how most people think one and, does. And we know you have another article that you're working on. Yes, I'm working on a, on an article for a scholarly uh, magazine, uh, you know, journal. Uh, it's an article on. It's a critique of the concept of soft power. Huh? And and so what I'm what I do in this article, what I what I have been doing, I'm not quite finished. I I'm praying that I will have the energy to finish it this weekend. Uh, what I'm doing in this article is trying to show that the concept of soft power is itself a soft, <coughs> a soft concept that it actually does not provide, an, 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 you know, the, the real kinds of conditions for an analysis of power as one should analyze power, including in particularly in the symbolic and subjective realms. I mean, if you look at students of power who have really looked carefully at the symbolic dimensions, I'll just mention two. Uh, well, three actually: Max Weber, uh, um, uh, Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci in the prison books, and and perhaps most importantly, uh, Pierre Bourdieu, the great French sociologist, who and whose work who, whose work focuses on symbolic power. Uh, if you look, if you look, I don't want to you know mention names. This is not a personal issue between me and the theorists of soft power in the U.S. It's, it, if you look at the, the, the behaviorist, the sim, what I consider to be the simplistic behaviorist assumptions of the idea of soft power as against these other theoretical frameworks, you'll see how poor it is, actually. So I, I think we need to rethink the idea, the concept of soft power, and get back to, get back to more fundamental notions of symbolic power. And I think Bourdieu is the right place to go. Oh my goodness! Wow. I mean, well, we'd love to have you. For that. I know we would. We would love to have another discussion on that. Um, so, actually, one more thing before we wrap it up, I wanted to mention that my thesis originally—I changed it now—but it was going to be on gastro diplomacy. So, do you have any opinions on food diplomacy, or can we have a discussion on it at some I point? Mean, yeah. Well, I mean, of course, we can have a discussion. We can certainly discuss it for your thesis. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, does you know. 
do national food traditions create appeal, yeah. uh, an appeal for the, the relevant cultures? Obviously, yes. Bring obviously. people together. Obviously, yes. It does do that. Uh, does this fundamentally affect the way in which international relations work? I would say no. No. But, but for, <laughs> us, for us as human beings, it's really important, right? Yes. It's not necessarily important for interstate relations or for, you know, the, the, oh, the overwhelming issues of world politics. But for us as individuals, as we across the world as multicultural people and as hopefully, you know, cosmopolitan. I think for us it's really Yes, I love it. Um, this is a great note to wrap up on. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. Thank you radio. for having me. Um, and we'll see you in class on Monday. <laughs> what an interesting interview. I know. Wow. What a great discussion. What did you all think? I mean, we mobilized theory, we mobilized practice. We looked at every element of this trade relationship, and it's complicated. That's, yeah. that's, that's the solution. I mean, that's the, the, the conclusion, I mean. The conclusion. Unfortunately, we don't yet have a solution. And right. No I don't... solution. And, if... and that's what it is, right? Because he's, <laughs> Golov, he's, oh, look at this great problem. And that's it. <laughs> and that's Period. it. No, but that's great. interesting. But that's interesting to learn about. Honestly. And I we analyzed that. it. If And that's fun. And I don't yeah. think I've ever heard the name Adam Smith repeated so many times <laughs> in one yeah. single I room. think it's because that's what we all read most recently. I know. That was <laughs> Wealth of Nations. That was um, my most opened microphone. I mean, it was, it, was, <laughs> it was really interesting having our professor. I mean, not just a highly esteemed mm-hmm. political philosophy extraordinaire mm. author mm-hmm. highly accomplished academic i mean but he's our professor you know so it was really interesting seeing him outside of the classroom and just having a pretty candid conversation absolutely yeah and by the way he, he showed up early he yes did. he was ready to go he showed up 30 minutes before i mean we were we were still trying to figure out these microphones and try to set the stuff up and yeah he showed up ready for action ready ready for action and you know thankfully we were able to get ourselves together you know yeah, yeah. and <laughs> hold hold a fantastic interview which we hope you all enjoyed so listeners that was episode one of this podcast i hope you guys really enjoyed it stay tuned for the next episode